I invite you uh, to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, uh, Peter is writing to a number of churches scattered throughout modern day Turkey. And they're going through different levels of suffering and affliction because of their faith or just because of the trials of that Christians have in general. And he's continuing to encourage them to persevere, trust God, be faithful even in the midst of suffering. And you know, it's, it's hard for us to identify with a lot of this because we live in America and we do have still some religious liberty. We're not being persecuted like we've talked about earlier with the voice of martyrs and their ministry to Christians and churches around the world that are being persecuted severely, some being put to death. And it's a challenge for us to kind of connect with that. But I think what Peter's word to us is this morning is get prepared. Because when suffering comes, or just when trials come, which we all have in our life, we need to be armed. We need to be ready. We need to have the proper mind of Christ in order to respond in a way that pleases the Lord. So I think it's very applicable to us, but uh, our circumstances are certainly different than uh, the churches he's writing to. So First Peter chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Uh, from the inspired Word of God. So please listen carefully. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, of lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you but they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Again, what Peter's trying to do with his churches that he's writing to is to buttress their faith, their courage to stand strong in the midst of persecution. Whether they're suffering for righteousness at work or at home or in the community, or whether they're just going through various trials that that affect our faith and challenge our faith, he is encouraging them to stand firm and particularly to arm themselves. This is something, again, that uh, we see in the book of Revelation, for example. As, Paul, as, excuse me, as John is writing this revelation and the dragon, Satan, 
has come out and he's been cast down to the earth. And now he's persecuting those who belong to the Lord. And it says that they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. And that's really kind of the challenge for us. Probably few of us will ever be faced with death and living a life for Jesus Christ. But they were. And who knows what the future holds. But the exhortation is back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same purpose. Arm yourself. Now obviously when he's talking about arm yourself, he doesn't mean in light of the the Second Amendment, we can go out and all get guns and we can tote our guns. Uh, some of us do, and, and we have the privilege and, and uh, the liberty to do that. But he's not talking about carrying your gun with you. He's talking about arming your soul for the spiritual battles that lie ahead. That's why Paul even mentioned this in 2 Corinthians 10, when he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So we're talking about the Spirit of God, the Word of God. We arm ourselves with truth to sustain us and give us courage in the day of battle. Spiritual battle. So in this passage, what Peter's main command is to the believers is arm yourself. Get prepared spiritually, mentally. Get your heart ready to endure opposition and persecution and suffering for righteousness. Get ready. Get prepared. Arm yourself. So what I see in most of this paragraph is some of the reasons why we are to arm ourselves and be prepared for affliction, for back in chapter 1, he spoke of the various trials that we all face. And he's giving them reasons for why they need to arm themselves. And the first one that I see that he mentions is because in a sense we are imitating Christ. So look again at verse 1. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself for the same purpose to suffer in the flesh is the idea. Christ then becomes somewhat of an example. Christ suffered in the flesh. I mean, during His life He suffered. The Jewish leaders hated Him. Their antagonism was was always there. They accused him of being a false teacher, a blasphemer, insane, demon-possessed. He suffered that type of persecution. And of course, they crucified him, the main point. They put him on the cross. He suffered in the flesh. That is, in his earthly body as a man. And since Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter is saying, arm yourselves for the same purpose. So there is a sense in which we are called to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in His suffering. 
Now, his suffering on the cross was for atonement. Ours is not, obviously. Doesn't contribute anything to our salvation. But our suffering is by way of imitation. He suffered to save us from our sins. We suffer like Him so that we can be conformed more to His image. This is something Peter has already emphasized back in chapter 2, verse 21. He told the slaves in the churches that you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. So He exhorted them, be ready to suffer. Be willing to imitate Christ. Be like Christ in this regard. And then Paul in Philippians 3, of course, spoke of the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship he had with Christ when he had to endure affliction and suffering for the Gospel. We enter into kind of a bond, a spiritual fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ when we are suffering with Him. And I think that's what Peter has in mind. So that when we are called to suffer for persecution, standing up for the Gospel, being identified with Jesus Christ, you can arm yourself with knowing, you know what, that's a part of, the, of my Christian faith. It's a part of my, my life. To be conformed to the image of Christ. To imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in His suffering now and His glory later. But that's a part of my calling as a follower of Christ is to imitate Him as He endured suffering, so must we. And you can arm your soul with that truth to help encourage you. That's just a part of the Christian life. Suffering, affliction, trials, it's there. Accepted as part of God's providential means of conforming us more to the image of our Savior. And then the second thing I think Peter says is that in suffering for Christ, that's actually a sign or evidence that you have been born again, that you are a believer. If you're willing to endure suffering for Christ, then that's good evidence that you belong to Him, that His Spirit is within you, that you have grace in your heart, that you've been born again. And I think this is another way to arm ourselves spiritually for the battle. That if I'm called upon, if you are called upon to suffer for Christ, and you suffer it in the name of the Lord Jesus for living a godly Christian life, then you can be encouraged by that. Because that is evidence, that's a sign that you have the new birth. So in verse 1, Peter goes on to say, because he has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. Now, suffered in the flesh here doesn't mean to die because in verse 2, he's talking about that they would go on to live in the, the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So, we suffer in the flesh, but we, we're not martyred yet. Well, we suffer for righteousness, for the gospel, whatever it may be. And what Peter is saying, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it doesn't mean that if you suffer as a Christian, suddenly you're just going to start living a super holy life and stop sinning all the way around. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. 
But I think what he is saying is that you have ceased from sin. In other words, there has been a breakage in the bondage that once held you in your sin nature. You have ceased from sin. Not that you stopped sinning completely, but you have been severed. You have been separated from your old sinful life that you are a slave to. You have ceased from sin. You've ceased from the bondage and the slavery of your previous life. You've been born again. You've been changed. You have ceased from sin. In other words, you're no longer living totally for the, for the flesh and for the world and for the devil. You've been changed. You have ceased from sin. This is a similar thing again that Paul said in Romans 6 verse 14 when he says to the believer, for sin shall not be master over you for you're not under law but under grace. And I think what Peter is saying is something very similar. You have ceased from sin. Not that you stop sinning completely, but you've ceased from being under the dominion of and the slavery of sin. And that would be evidence that you've been born again. And this is something that Peter has already emphasized a couple of times, this reality of the new birth in his letter. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, he talked about God's great mercy that has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In verse 23, he says, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. So there's been a change. And how do you know that that change is in reality? Whether you have the grace to suffer for the Gospel or for righteousness or for Christ. If you have that grace to suffer for Christ, then it's encouraging evidence that you've been born again, that you've been changed, that you have ceased from living a life dominated by sin. I think that's his point. So he goes on to say in verse 2 now that you have ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, that is, for you're here on earth, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So now you're living for the will of God. You're living because you have a new nature. You've been born again. You have ceased from the dominion of sin that's been broken. And now you're committed to live for the will of God. Not perfectly, but that's the bent. You have a new nature. You've been born again. That domination of sin has been broken. And then he adds to that in verse 3, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In other words, what Peter is emphasizing here, because you have been changed, you have a new nature, you have ceased from sin in the, in the ultimate sense of not being dominated by it. So that your past life is that, that's, you had plenty of time back then to live a, a life committed to sin. So that's in your past. The time already passed, that was sufficient for you to have carried out all the desires of the Gentiles, which again is evidence that his audience, his readers are primarily Gentiles. They pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness. You've had all the sufficient time to live that way. You're different now. You have ceased from sin. 
Grace has changed you. I think that's the point that he's trying to make. All this list of sins here just go with the world. But what he's emphasizing is that you've had a change in your lifestyle. You're no longer that person. And again, this is what grace does. It changes us. It sends us down a new direction in life. Yeah, we still wrestle with the flesh. But we're no longer who we used to be. We've been changed by the grace of God. And I think that's what he's emphasizing. So the encouragement is is that if you suffer for doing what is right in the eyes of God, if you suffer for the Gospel, if you suffer for righteousness, if you suffer for Christ, be encouraged. Because it takes grace to suffer for Christ. It takes a bold witness. It takes some kind of a witness that they're responding against. And that's, that's encouraging that there's grace in my heart and in your heart. If we're willing to actually endure suffering for the cause of righteousness. Again, this is what Paul emphasized to the Corinthian church when he gave his list of sins. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. You're not that anymore. You used to be that. It's time sufficient to do that kind of a lifestyle, but you're not that now. You were that, but you're not that now. You've been changed. I mean, someone, a believer, can still wrestle with some of these things in here, but you've been changed. You're not that person anymore. You're a child of God, born again with new desires, a new direction. So he's emphasizing to them, I think, that when you're willing to suffer for Christ and you're willing to suffer for biblical values, that should encourage you because the world won't suffer for him. But Christians will because we love our Lord and we know right and wrong because the Scriptures tell us. And when we stand up and preach the Gospel and we tell all men that they're sinners, then the world doesn't like to hear that. The world doesn't want anybody to tell them that they're living in sin. And when we do that, when we preach the Gospel, when we talk to them about sin in the eyes of God and they respond negatively and they they vent their anger and hatred against us and we end up being persecuted or suffering, well then that's evidence that we've been changed. That the new birth has been granted us. It's a good sign that God is in our hearts through the Spirit even when we're willing to suffer for Christ. Again, the world doesn't do that. It's like dead fish in the river always float with the current. It takes a live fish to swim against the current of the world. And that's where we're at as believers. We're living in a sinful, ungodly world and we're to, to live lives that please God. And the world will react negatively to that. And so Peter is saying, look, Some of y'all are going through suffering now. Intense suffering. Some of y'all will later on. 
Others of y'all are just going through various trials in life. But whatever you're going through, arm yourself to be faithful to the Lord, knowing that you're imitating Christ's example and also that when you're willing to suffer for Christ or for righteousness or biblical values, it's a sign of grace in your life, in your heart. It's a sign of the new birth. And then the third reason that he gives is that also if you're willing to suffer for the Lord, then you can have a a future hope of glory. We may suffer now, but glory waits us in the future. And I really think that's what verses 4-6 through are getting at. It kind of comes together at the very end of verse 6. But I think he's talking about that ultimately, though we're suffering now, we will have this incredible glory in the future. So let's kind of break this down before we get to verse 6. But notice what he says here in verse 4. Notice the response of unbelievers in verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them to the same excesses of dissipation that they may malign you. So what he's saying here is that the, the world, number one, they're surprised. They're surprised because you used to go out and do all these catalog of sins that he mentioned here in verse 3. You used to run with the crowd. You used to do all that stuff with them. But you've stopped doing it. The drinking parties, the drunkenness, the sensuality, the lust, the abominable idolatries. Because you see back then, the Life in in the Roman Empire and the civic and national activities of the nation was was revolving around all of this stuff. I mean, that was just part of the culture back then. All of these sins that he listed in verse three was just normal activity for for most of them. A bunch of heathen religious ceremonies. But they've noticed you're not there. You're not showing up when they go to the temple. You're not showing up when they have their drinking parties and they're going to go out and do all their orgies and all that kind of stuff. You're not there. And they come up to you and they they ask you, well, where were you? It's interesting, when I look at verse 3, what comes to my mind, all those sins that are listed there, it's like a, a frat house on a college campus. I mean, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatry. Yeah, that's that's being in a fraternity in college, most of them. I was in a fraternity in college. And I was uh, living in the house when the Lord saved me. I was a sophomore in college when the Lord uh, changed my life. And it was, I had one of those 180 conversions. And I remember living in the fraternity house, walking down the hall and some of the guys would ask me, where were you last night? We went out drinking. We didn't. Well, you weren't there. Where were you? And at that time, of course, I was young in my faith and I can't even remember what I said, but I made some probably comment about, you know, well, I, I'm not doing that anymore or what. I don't remember what I said. But they will come up to you and they'll ask you, why aren't you, why aren't you enjoying these sins the way we used to enjoy them together? What, what, what happened? They're surprised. They're shocked. 
that we have changed. That we don't run with them the same way. That we don't engage in the same excesses of dissipation. We see it for what it is. And they're shocked. They're surprised. And then what do they do? They malign you. They malign us. They slander us. They demean us. They denigrate us. They revile us. They defame us. Well, you Christians, you're just a bunch of hate mongers. If you really love people, then you'd approve of their lifestyles and you wouldn't point it out as sin. That's what they'll tell us. They'll vilify us because we believe in biblical morality. Because sinners always want the approval of others in their sin. They do not want anybody to come up and tell them that their lifestyle is sinful. They get upset. They get upset at us. They get upset at God. That's why there's such an opposition to a conversion therapy. You know, you try to minister to someone who wants to come out of the LGBTQ lifestyle and states have laws. Say, so you can't do that. You can't try to help them come out. They don't want anybody condemning them. They don't want anybody pointing out their lifestyle as a, as a sin. And yet Paul says, and such were some of you. People can change. Grace of God can change anybody. But sinners of any kind don't want others to oppose their lifestyle. And those who do oppose them, they will malign. Whether it's you or whether it's God, they will malign anybody that attacks their lifestyle and says that it's not good. You remember back in uh, 1995, Timothy McVeigh bombed the Murrah Federal Building, which killed 168 people injured over 600 people, caused over $650 million worth of damage. About six years later, it was time for him to be executed. And he handed to the prison warden a handwritten copy of a poem entitled Invictus, written by William Ernest Hensley. And Invictus means unconquerable in Latin. And what Timothy McVeigh had written out on that piece of paper was his defiance. His defiance against society. His defiance against God that's going to try to hold him accountable. This is what he wrote. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And you just sense the defiance. He's maligning the jailer that justly put him to death, the warden, the prison system. He's maligning God because sinners do not like anybody pointing out that they're sin. He was consumed, McVeigh was consumed with his own pride even in death. And he refused to turn from his sin and maligned God's justice that rightly took his life. 
So you find the response of the unbelievers. And then Peter moves on to the recompense. He says, unbelievers will give an account in verse 5. Those who malign you, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So they may be dishing out the suffering now, but they will have their share in the future on the judgment day. So I think what Peter is reminding his readers is, look, yeah, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for righteousness. You're going to suffer for godliness. You're going to suffer for your Christian faith. You're going to just go through trials. But arm yourself. Because someday there will be a payday. And though you suffer now, you're going to have so much glory to look forward to that will compensate. Arm yourself with that truth as well. So he says in verse 6, For the Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. You're going to live in the Spirit. Now before we kind of get into that and, and try to spell it out, Bear with me for a moment as I deal with the first part of verse 6 because a lot of people read this and they think, well, possibly it teaches a second chance of salvation for the dead. Look at what it says in verse 6. For the Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Really? So, I mean, kind of you can kind of see that as a possible idea, but obviously that's not what Peter is saying here. He's not saying that Jesus Christ is going to preach the Gospel to the dead and give them a second chance to be saved. That for uh, several reasons. Number one, it contradicts Scripture. There's no other Scripture that supports that idea. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, "...inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment." It's not they die and then after this comes a second offer and then judgment. After death comes judgment. And Christ's parable on Lazarus and the rich man certainly gives no hope for a second chance after someone dies. Lazarus and the rich man, remember Lazarus is with Abraham. The rich man is in Hades. And Jesus said there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come from here to you, says Abraham, will not be able. And none can cross over from you, rich man in Hades, to us. And that just seems to rule out any idea of a second chance or any common idea of salvation for those who are dead hearing the Gospel another time. Some people connect this with chapter 3, verse 19, where the risen Christ did make a proclamation to the spirits who were in prison, but that's not preaching the Gospel there. That's just making a proclamation. And Peter makes a distinction between those two concepts. Chapter 3, verse 19 is not Jesus Christ preaching the Gospel to the dead. He's making a proclamation of His victory. Also, if you look at verse 6, notice the Gospel preaching is in the past tense. 
For the gospel has for this purpose been preached. It has been preached. It's in the past tense. If you're talking about a second chance for the dead, it would need to be in the future tense. That it will be preached to the dead in the future before the judgment. And yet, it just doesn't fit with the language here. Also, Christ is not the one preaching the gospel here in verse 6. It's men. They're preaching the gospel about Christ and it's been preached even to those who are dead. But it's not Christ preaching anyway. It's We assume it's men preaching the gospel. The gospel is about Christ, but it's not being preached by Christ in this verse. So that doesn't really fit either. Back up in verse 5 again, he says that those who malign you will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So he's going to judge the dead. No reference there to any hope of a second chance for salvation. And besides that, it would seem to undercut the whole message of 1 Peter if Peter saying, look, stay faithful to Christ. Persevere in suffering. If it didn't make any difference, if you're going to get a second chance anyway, then why not just go along with the flow of the world and, and, and be an apostate because later on you know after you die you'll have a second chance to salvation. It would undercut all the exhortations and reason for being faithful to Christ if there was a second chance of salvation. So what's the best view? Well, I think the best view is any of you who have the NIV translation inserts a little word now. So it says, for the gospel has, has for this been, for this purpose been preached even to those who are now dead. And I think that word is not in the Greek, but it, it does clarify the meaning. In other words, the gospel is preached to men who are living, they believed it, and then they died. That's the idea. So anyway, I just wanted to take a moment and kind of wade through the, the weeds on, on that uh, challenging verse. But then look at what it goes on to say in verse 6. Talking about those who have died, though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. So they're talking about believers who have died. They have heard the Gospel when they were alive. Now they're dead. And though they have been judged in the flesh as men, they've been persecuted unto death. They were martyrs. Nevertheless, they will live in the Spirit according to the will of God. And I think what Peter has in mind in this expression is to live in the Spirit means that even though you die, you're judged in the flesh as men. They take your life. You're going to live in the Spirit in the presence of God in the intermediate state. Your soul will go to heaven. You'll be alive in the presence of Christ in heaven in your spirit and your soul. And that is ultimately the hope that we have. I mean, after all, what can men do to you? They can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. They kill our body, but our soul goes to live with Christ in heaven. And I think that's what Peter ultimately has in mind. There's many different ways to interpret it, but that's the way I, I understand it. This living hope of glory is a powerful theme in Peter's letter. You remember, this is how he started it. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, 
undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice. I mean, Peter's trying to get these believers to say, look, whatever suffering you endure now, look at the glory that awaits you. You've been born again to a living hope. And you have an inheritance in heaven that's imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's there waiting for you. So be faithful to Christ even if you must suffer now. Look at the glory that awaits you in the heaven with Jesus Christ. And let your joy be in that. And ultimately, I think that's the encouragement that He's giving His readers. So to summarize, I think he's saying arm yourself for suffering. Knowing that when you suffer for righteousness, for biblical values, whatever, for the Gospel, you're entering into imitating Jesus Christ in that level. You have evidence that your life has been changed. You're willing to swim against the current of the world and stand up for Christ and the Gospel. And you also have the hope of life in heaven forever, even if they kill you even if you become a martyr, look at the glory that awaits you in heaven. And I think that was his desire to encourage his readers when they face suffering. As we began with the emphasis on the voice of martyrs, I want to close with that. The last edition of their magazine, The Voice of Martyrs, is about a believers who are suffering in Ethiopia. And there's this one story that I read about a Muslim man named Denal who was in prison for three years because he assaulted another man uh, earlier. They got in some dispute and he attacked the guy and he was thrown in prison for three years. While he was in prison, he met other believers. So you're talking about the importance of a prison ministry. And, and through his time with those other believers, asking them questions, challenging them, they began to share the Gospel. They began to share Scriptures with him and eventually came to faith in Christ. He was finally released. About a year and a half later, he was with his wife and family in their village, in their home. And in the providence of God, he was led to go out and spend the night in a field close to his home to keep watch on one of his cows. So he was sleeping out there. And during the night, a bunch of Muslim villagers came to his house. They knew he was a Christian. They tied the doors shut from the outside. His wife and children are on the inside and they set the the house on fire. He's asleep out in the field. He awakens to the smell of smoke. He looks up, he sees his house a couple of hundred yards away on fire. He runs as fast as he can and he gets there and he unties the rope on the doors and gets his wife and children out just in time before the house is consumed with the flames. His response was later that he believed that the Lord had led him to sleep with his cow out out in the field to save his family. He said it was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were 
punished for not worshiping another god, but they were protected from the fire. And that's what the Lord did for us. And He was greatly encouraged by that. And then He said, but our real home is in heaven. And they only burned my earthly home. So my heart is not full of hate towards them. And I pray for them regularly. In other words, he had a vision. He had an understanding of the incredible hope of glory that if they take everything from us, our home, our eternal home is in heaven. They can't touch that. He went on to say that he had no fear of death because he refused to leave the village. He was committed to stay there and share the Gospel with the other Muslims. He said he had no fear of death. He says, my life belongs to God. And I believe He put me here. If He allows me to be killed, I'm ready to die. If He wants to save the entire village, then I'll just have to be patient. But Jesus died in the open on the cross, not underground. So I want to die in the open. That's the ultimate expression of the Gospel. And I think what He meant by that is He didn't want to put His light under the bushel basket. He wanted to let His light shine to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, to live for Christ, even if it brings persecution and suffering and shame and abuse our way. That's okay. I'm being gradually conformed to the image of Christ. It's evidence that His Spirit is within me and I have the hope of heaven ahead of me. And I think in all of this, we can be challenged in America because we don't face that kind of suffering and yet it's so easy for us to want to Hide our light under the bushel basket. But may God give us boldness and courage to be faithful to Christ. Not obnoxious, but just to live a godly life that will give testimony to what Christ has done in changing us. And be willing to give a good witness and a good testimony to the lost world in which we live because of what Christ has done in saving us from our sins. So may God encourage us through the persecuted church. These people are dying. We're not faced with that. How much more courage and boldness should we have? May the Lord help us to become more of a godly, bold witness for Him. Now to Him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you.